Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, David Weil will join us to discuss Exhale. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the world of transplant surgery is one filled with many travails. Joining us today to discuss his personal experience and memoir is Dr. David Weil. Dr. Weil is the former director of the Center for Advanced Lung Disease and the Lung Transplant Program at Stanford. He is currently the principal of Weil Consulting Group, which focuses on improving the delivery of transplant care for patients. Dr. Weil's writings has appeared in numerous outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, Salon, Newsweek, and others. And he has penned his new memoir entitled, Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. And Dr. Weil, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We'll talk a lot about uh, your experience in the field of transplant medicine. I'm curious why you decided to put the memoir together. Yeah, so I saw things every day that to me were really uh, unbelievable. And so I started keeping a journal about halfway through my career about some of these experiences, what the patients were going through, what we on the care team were going through. And these notes that I made to myself, and sometimes they were just bullet points rather than full sentences, became my book, Exhale. I, I wanted somebody, the reader, to come along with me, and it was as, as if they were in the room with me. And I wanted to show the behind-the-scenes look at a transplant program where we're practicing high-stakes medicine. Curious how you became interested in the field of transplant medicine. Yeah, so I um, very early on in my career got exposed to kidney transplant when I was a an intern at Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas. And even though I ultimately went into lung transplant, not kidney transplant, it was my time on that service back in 1990 that really hooked me into the field. I, I write about this in the book where, I, you know, first night I was actually on the service as a, as a very young doctor, inexperienced young doctor. I saw I saw a patient get transplanted, and suddenly they were making urine for the first time in decades, and I couldn't believe it that we could change somebody's life with an operation. And so that really hooked me into the field. And then when I went on to study pulmonary medicine, it so happened that Colorado, where I was doing my fellowship training, was opening up a lung transplant program at the same time. So I was in the right place at the right time. Lung transplants, are they tougher, more involved than other types of transplants? They really are. I mean, of all the transplants that we do in solid organs, you know, heart, lung, kidney, and liver, lung transplant, I would say, is the toughest. The um, lung is a difficult organ to transplant. It is the newest of all the transplants that we do, and we're still working to improve the outcomes. And we've made a lot of progress in my 25 years in the career but we still have a ways to go in getting it to the same quality as the other transplants that I mentioned. Your book recounts a number of stories, different types of patients. Looking back on this career, were there certain cases, certain events that be impacted you more than others? 
I, I think so. And I think that I talk a, a lot about this in the book where I develop personal relationships with many of our patients. They, the bond that transplant teams for, form with their patients, I think is special. And, it, and it's what attracted me to the field in the first place, those sorts of relationships. And so the good news is when the transplant surgery goes well and the patients go on to live forever, you get to share in these patients' success. One thing that I write about in the book and that you know is a problem in our field is when you become close to these patients and then it doesn't go so well, that's devastating for the transplant team. It was personally devastating for me. And I write about instances where I became very close to young patients, usually with cystic fibrosis, who were in their 20s. And these folks in many ways became like my own kids. And watching them go through the ups and downs of the transplant experience really was so profound to me. And I write in the book also that I never had trouble getting up in the morning to go to work. It was a real pleasure to go, as hard as it is to do that kind of work. I didn't have any trouble motivating myself to to get there and do well. What do you think is the hardest part about the job? The, The surgery, the waiting for the transplant, so many different aspects that could be impactful. Yeah, I think all of those things are difficult. I think the hardest part is the waiting list period for our patients. In other words, you have to imagine a group of patients that are are very sick and that need a transplant operation to survive. And so they're waiting essentially by the telephone to get the call. And the call can happen anytime, 24-7, 365. So they have to stay ready all the time, sometimes for months. Well, the transplant team also has to stay ready all the time. And so I donor call is what we called it when we'd hear about prospective organs that were available. And so I could be at my kid's soccer game or out to dinner with my wife or asleep most of the time when these kind of calls came in. And just being ready all the time to get to work is difficult. It's difficult physically and it's difficult emotionally because I think I didn't really have a, a time that I could sort of shut it all off. That that just didn't happen in my career up until the point that I walked away from it you know, now a few years ago. I can only imagine always constantly having to be on. Is there a way in which transplant programs organize that? It's a good question. And I think some transplant programs do it better than others in spreading the work around. And, and part of it was the way that, that I was as leader of the lung transplant program at Stanford. I took on that responsibility onto myself to pick out the donors that we were going to use for the transplant. So in a lot of ways, I can't really blame the system so much or our transplant program, how it was set up. It was really me wanting to try to control that process, which on the good side, it led to a lot of great outcomes. But on the bad side, it, it was also difficult to sustain that you know, forever. And in fact, I, as I mentioned, I stepped out of it after about 20 years in the field, I'd, uh, at that point, my battery was run out. Everyone hopes for a good outcome, but uh, these things obviously are fraught with all kinds of variables. What happens when a transplant fails? What are the factors that go into it? I mean, after so much waiting and then to have it not work, that's certainly hard. Yeah, transplant, and I can't think of another field in medicine that has so many moving parts to it. You know, you have to pick the right recipient, you have to pick the right donor, you have to do the right operation, and then the post-operative care in the ICU has to be perfect, really. And so all these moving parts are difficult to manage. And in fact, there's not that many transplant programs in the country that actually do it well. 
because of the variability that these patients present to us. So I think the hardest part is trying to manage an inherently uncontrollable process. There are so many variations that patients present to us, and all of these things have to go right for it to work. But thankfully, most of the time, they do go right, um, and especially in good transplant centers, they go right most of the time so that our patients can do well. Has there been uh, any cases that uh, were just truly astounding? Yes. I mean, I, th- this happens fairly regularly, whether it was transplanting somebody that had a diagnosis, a special type of lung cancer that it was amenable to transplant, and he you know, went on to survive for many, many years. In fact, is still alive. That was ox wisdom was you can't transplant somebody that has cancer. So that was particularly memorable, and I write about that in the book. But we also transplanted a gentleman that had a cognitive developmental disorder. So he was considered by many programs not to be smart enough, quote unquote, to get the transplant. In other words, could he comply with his medical regimen that's complicated? And these are the kind of value judgments and ethical and moral decisions that need to be made within a transplant program that have always fascinated me. It's not just about doing an operation. It brings in all of societal issues wrapped up in this one big operation, whether it's race and the racial disparities in transplant, you probably won't be surprised to know that because they're in healthcare everywhere. There's issues of privilege and access. There's issues of medical errors. Pretty much everything that happens in medicine, it's uber important in transplant. In other words, whatever issues present in medicine as a whole is exacerbated by transplant because it's such a high-risk, high-reward field. You know, many of these judgments probably wouldn't need to be made if there were just more donors out there. Yeah, and, I, and I've definitely been involved in that, not only in the encouraging more people to donate, but also helping companies that are devising technologies that actually keep organs alive outside of the body for longer periods of time so that they can be made more viable and that the transplant programs can then have more time to assess their function. So I'm very involved in increasing the utilization of the organs that are available. But just to put some real numbers around it, there's around 120,000 people waiting today for an organ transplant, yet in the country, we're going to do between 35 and 40,000 transplants this year. So you can pretty easily see that there is a mismatch between the number of people that need the organs and the actual transplant surgery that we're going to do. Something called medical urgency in transplant, where the people that need the organs the most, that, that they are the sickest, actually go up higher on the waiting list. Nearly all of the organs have some kind of medical urgency system in place, but it doesn't prevent people from dying on the wait list. For instance, in lung transplant, a little over 20% of all the people that are listed for a lung transplant will die waiting for one. So one in five will actually die waiting on a list. And that's the part that I could really never accept. And I'm working you know, with various entities that are trying to prevent all waiting list deaths for all organs if we can. We, we've just got to utilize the organs that are out there better, I think. 
<laughs> you spent a long time as uh, the director of the Stanford Transplant Center there, and then you decided to change directions. I mean, what was the process that led to that? Yeah. What I wanted to do when I left Stanford is I wanted to use whatever skill set I had to try to help the transplant field at large. So a lot of what I'm doing right now is directed toward helping companies that are in the transplant space that are trying to innovate. And we need innovation and we need technology to help us. But I also help individual transplant programs on a consulting basis that are underperforming for a variety of reasons, whether they're clinical or administrative or financial. And I go in and try to help those transplant programs as best I can by giving them advice based on what I learned during the course of my career. And I find that work very gratifying because I figure if I can help the transplant programs help other people, help patients, then I'm, then I'm doing something, something worthwhile. Do you get a sense that transplant programs in general are improving, that uh, this utilization is getting better, or where do you think the challenges are going ahead? I, I think the main challenges are to continue to try to use the donors maximally that are available out there. In other words, utilize the organ donor base to the extent possible. And I think we have some work to do there. So we need to make the organ distribution system better. We've got, we've got work to do there. But we also need to attract more young people to the field. One concern that I have because of the nature of this field, it's physically difficult, it's emotionally difficult, is we're attracting less young people, young physicians to the field. We, we don't have as many people coming up in this area than we have physicians to fill. So as the transplant activity increases, we're going to need more and more doctors to be able to service these programs. And I don't see a full pipeline of these physicians coming through for a variety of reasons. But I think some of the reasons have to do with the life itself. It's a very unpredictable life. It, it has its ups and downs to it. And we're finding that more and more young doctors are choosing other fields because of its unpredictability. The memoir is certainly a fascinating look back at your career. What would you like people to take home after reading the memoir, some messages that uh, you'd like to impart? I think that the main message, and this goes beyond medicine really, is to make sure that in the course of one's career, that we, we commit fully to what we're doing, but we never forget the work-life balance that I know a lot of folks are talking about now, but we really need to hone in on that. Whether it's family or friends or your faith, we've got to be able to continue servicing all of the aspects of our life rather than just the professional ones. And in fact, in doing some of the promotion for this book, I've, I've spoken in front of groups that are not medical groups. They're Wall Street traders or attorneys or airline pilots, all high stress jobs where I'm trying to, you know, at least impart the message that this kind of balance is critical for us to be able to continue to do our jobs well. Well, we were just talking with Dr. David Weil. He has penned the new memoir, Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. Dr. Weil, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.